We've been going through the storyline of the Old Testament that we have framed out in the 11 books that contain the continuous narrative of God's story, who he is and who humanity is and what God is doing in this world. And as we pull back now and begin to move toward the books of Joshua and Judges, I want us to see that basically we have four sections that are found in these 11 books. Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers forms that first section. This is the creation of the world and the depravity of humanity and what God is doing to redeem people and calling a nation to himself and the nation of Israel. And then we've got Joshua and Judges. This is the time period when they get into the land and then the initial events that take place. And it doesn't go really well. And then we have Samuel and Kings. This is the time of the kingdom. And we've got King Saul and David and Solomon and then the other kings of the divided kingdom. And then they go into exile because of their disobedience. And then that brings us to the fourth time period. That's after the exile. And we find that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Right now in this particular session, we're gonna focus in on that second time period, the books of Joshua and Judges. When we come into these books, there is a certain way that we need to read this particular history. Keep in mind that we're gonna cover a number of years when we go through Joshua and Judges, and it would, it would require a number of stories to tell completely what happens in the land. So as these books are written, the author's very selective about stories that are told, and he wants us to understand the point that he's trying to make in the telling of these stories. So they oftentimes use patterns or cycles of history that are portrayed by each generation to make that point. And so as we read through books like Joshua and Judges, it's important for us to consider patterns and themes and motifs that might be apparent to reveal this bigger picture of what it is that God wants us to know about the way that he's working in this world. And so we wanna look at some of those patterns and some of those themes and motifs as they appear in these books. And Joshua and Judges, both, both of these books are very clear in this pattern or this cycle that they want us to see. Now, as we think about just the big picture of content, as we work our way through these two books, consider the book of Joshua. The first 12 chapters are about the conquest of the land. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. God enters into a covenant relationship with Abram with three promises. We've got the land, the seed, and the blessing. What we have in the book of Joshua in the first 12 chapters is the realization of that first promise, that of land. God is finally going to get his people in his land, which he is purchasing for them. He's setting it apart for them. It's gonna be their land in the days ahead. So the first 12 chapters talk about the conquest. The last part of the book, chapters 13 through 24, deal with the dividing up of the land. Every one of God's people were to have an inheritance in the land. They all had a part that they were to steward for his purposes. Then we move into the book of Judges, they're in the land, the land has been divided, they each are occupying their inheritance. And in the first two chapters of Judges, it gives us a little bit of an introduction as to why the story that unfolds now that they're in the land, why this, the story that unfolds after this is not so good. There is a very dark time 
during this particular period of nations of the nation of Israel's history. And so in the first two chapters, it's gonna develop why this is true. And then in chapters three through 16, it's gonna give us uh, just the stories of that struggle, the stories of the different judges who, who'd ruled over the people during that time. And then in the last four chapters, chapter 17 through 21, what we have there is just a depiction of how bad it really was. As if the, the cycle or the stories that we've seen in chapters three through 16 are not enough, in chapters 17 through 21, the author is gonna bring us into a couple of situations that show how bad it was morally, how bad it was spiritually for the people in the land. And so that's a big picture of where we're gonna be going. And there's a thread, there's, there's certain themes, certain patterns and cycles that the authors clearly want us to see as we work our way through this book. But the big picture is there's a beauty to Israel finally realizing this promise from God and being in the land. But there's also just a darkness as we realize this isn't going so well. The people do not enjoy the blessings of being in the land because of their sin. Before we actually move through some of these very important themes in the book, the overall theology, we, got, we have to address a very important issue that causes people a lot of concern as they work their way through the Old Testament. And that's the outpouring of the wrath on the people of the land. If you stopped and thought about it, when you read through the book of Joshua, especially the first 12 chapters, it's a very gory book. A lot of bloodshed, a lot of death. People are put to death on every single page in the book. And if you have a good imagination, you realize as they move from city to city to city, it's tragic what is happening. Students in my Old Testament class that I teach at the Christian University, they always have a struggle with this book as they realize the amount of bloodshed that is occurring as they read through the pages. And so this outpouring of anger or this outpouring of wrath on the people of the land that leads to their total destruction, we must be able to think through this and understand why this is taking place. Oftentimes people refer to this God in the Old Testament as an angry God and this God of the New Testament as a merciful God. And I want to continue to pull this together and help us understand that God is not one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. God is who he is. And he's in relationship with his world in order to accomplish his purposes for his ultimate glory. So when this destruction happens in this particular book, we've got to see the big picture as to why. And as we see this big picture, I think it's going to dispel any notion that God is a wrathful God, he's just an angry God, and he acts arbitrarily to bring an end to certain people. He is merciful. He goes beyond anything that we can even imagine that he would do to try to maintain relationship with people. He's doing much to bring people into relationship with him. That's the big picture. And that's what we're gonna see as we work our way through these books. So if you could open up your Bibles to the book of Joshua, and we're gonna be working our way through some verses here to understand exactly what this means as we consider this reality of destruction in this book. In the ancient Near East culture, that's the world in which Israel lived. 
things or people could be put in what we call in the Old Testament under the ban. Things or people could be put under the ban. This practice, putting things or people under the ban, consecrated the thing or the person for the sanctuary or for the gods. It was a setting apart of things for the gods or a setting apart of people for the gods. They were set apart. And what this meant in war was total annihilation. It was destruction. When in war, when something was set apart or people were set apart for the sanctuary of the gods, it meant absolute destruction. And this was practiced in many of the ancient Near East cultures of that particular day. Now for the nation of Israel, the legislation for this has been already given to them as they were in the plain of Moab and they were envisioning taking the land under the leadership of Moses. Clear instructions were given about what they were to do once they got into the land. And in order to understand this, we have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I want us to read these verses in this particular passage because I want us to understand the very clear instructions. And once we understand these instructions, then we're going to look at the practice of this complete destruction in the book of Joshua. And then we're gonna step back and we're gonna consider purposes for this, or we're gonna ask the why question. So in Deuteronomy chapter seven, beginning in verse one, it says, when the Lord your God, and this is Moses, this is his second sermon given to the nation of Israel concerning the rules and regulations and what God is calling them to. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land, where you are entering to possess it and shall clear away many nations before you. Notice again, right from the very beginning, God shall clear away. We're gonna see humanity involved in this process, but this is ultimately about God. God is the one who's bringing judgment to a people. And God shall clear away the many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. If, if Israel is simply to look at the situation from their own perspective, they have no business going in to take the land. They're greater and they're stronger than Israel is. But they've got God on their side. God's the one who's gonna do the clearing away. Verse two, and when the Lord your God shall deliver them, who delivers? It's the Lord who delivers. When the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. That's under the ban. That's set apart for the sanctuary. That's These people are set apart for the sanctuary for God, so they're to be utterly destroyed. It goes on and it says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Therefore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your heart away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Now notice what God is doing here. He wants to bless his people. He wants to have them enjoy life and enjoy relationship with him. And so he's giving them this warning ahead of time. This is something we see about God. His law always is intended to lead to blessing. He is a holy God. He must be worshiped in the way that his name deserves, to the honor and praise and the glory of his name. You must treat him properly. And so he is warning Israel, this is how 
I want you to treat me. So therefore, you need to destroy these people so they don't lead you away. Why? If they lead you away, then my anger will be kindled against you as well. And I don't want that. I'm giving you the path to life. Walk in it. This is how I want you to live. And so God, in his mercy, continues to give very clear instructions so that Israel can enjoy a relationship with him. Verse five, but this is what you shall do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ash ring, burn their graven images with fire. The people are to be destroyed. Any evidence of the idolatry or the worship of other gods in the land, destroyed. Get rid of it all is what God is saying. Verse six, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Again, that relational dynamic that's there. We are in covenant relationship. I alone in the Lord, no other gods before me. I've chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth. I didn't set my love on you to, or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are the fewest, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. So here's where we have this initial instruction. Plains of Moab, looking at the land, you're gonna take the land and you're gonna destroy the people. Now, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, in especially verses 10 through 18, we have clear instruction that they are also to conduct warfare a certain way when they are in the land. Chapter seven, and chapter 20 can cause confusion for people because chapter seven says utterly destroy, whereas chapter 20 says offer them terms of peace. Now, is God contradicting himself? No, there, there's very clear for, uh, words in chapter 20 that we need to understand. God talks about those who are far versus those who are near. Those who are far, you first offer terms of peace. If they don't listen, destroy them but first offer terms of peace. Those who are near, they're to be handled differently. They are to be destroyed. The near ones that chapter 20 is talking about are the seven nations of the land, all the ites that we read about in verse one. They are to be destroyed. But once Israel's in the land and they begin to expand their borders and they begin to go to other nations outside of this occupied territory, then the rules for warfare were to be different. But in this particular land, it was chapter seven that was to be followed. God wanted to cleanse the land. God was taking over, a cleansing, get rid of all the evil people and all of the idolatry that is there. So ultimately, as, we, as they come into the, the book of Joshua and as we begin the taking of the land, we see that the general teaching was that they were under the ban and they were to be totally destroyed. Now we need to keep in mind, I've already made reference of this a couple of times in the book of Deuteronomy chapter seven, which we just read. God is the one who's behind all this. This is what God is doing. See, these are God's plans, God's purposes that are being worked out in the world. He's doing it through a people. Look at Joshua chapter 11. In this particular book, Chapter 11, in verses 18 through 20, notice the human element and the divine element. Verse 18, Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Verse 24, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle in order that he 
might utterly destroy them that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so in this particular verse, just like in Deuteronomy 7, we see both the human and the divine. Humans are carrying this out, but this is God's work. It's his intent to clear the land. We see something similar back in Exodus 23, 23. And again, this is back at Sinai. We're already envisioning this day. The Lord says to Moses, for my angel will go before you. This is the Lord's angel going before them and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hivites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites. Why? And I will completely destroy them. In chapter 34, in verse 11, in, this, in the same book of Exodus, be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself, don't make any covenant with them lest they become a snare in your midst. God is consistently giving them the same message throughout. And so we've got this human and divine. Now in the book of Joshua, it's a very victorious book. The, the stories that are told, we see Israel move into the land and they actually carry this out and they end up settling in the land and God gives them possession. Chapter six is an example of them actually carrying this out. And you just you have to have an imagination to really understand what's going on in these verses. Chapter six, verse 17. And the city, talking about Jericho, shall be under the ban, it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. See the connection there? It's under the ban. What does that mean? Everything in it belongs to the Lord. So if it's things, then they were consecrated to the sanctuary. If it's people, they are to be destroyed. It belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who were with her in the house shall live. And you can look back to the story in previous chapters about Rahab because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, look at the warning here, only keep yourselves from things under the ban, lest you covet them and take some of the things under the ban so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble in it. Absolute obedience. Now why? Because God is looking out for their good. He's calling them to a certain way of living so that he can bless them. He's doing everything he can to warn them about this. Verse 19, but all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. We skip down to verse 21. And so Israel goes in and they utterly destroyed everything in the city. Now listen, listen carefully. Both man and woman, young, I'm assuming babies, and old crippled old people walking around with canes, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Everything, everyone is destroyed. Verse 24, and they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Do you understand what happens here? Israel goes into the city of Jericho and everything that had breath of life in it is destroyed by the edge of the sword. Total destruction, total annihilation. It's a gory scene. It's an awful scene. 
and God uses human instrumentation to go into the land and carry this out. He's the one that is behind it. Ultimately, it's God bringing judgment to the people of this land and God protecting his own people so that they would not be led astray because if they're led astray, God will have to destroy them as well. God is a holy God and he's to be treated with reverence. You don't go your own way. You don't rebel. You don't live any way you want. All or honor and glory and praise and exaltation is to be given to him. And when it's not there, God can destroy. The fact that God doesn't do that throughout the entire world is his patience. So why these people? Why this time? Partly it's because God wants his people to have the land. It's time for them to take this inheritance. Why? So God can work out his plans in this world. But I want us to think about some of the purposes of what is going on here. And first of all, it would be judgment to the wicked people of the land. I want us to make a connection with a verse back in Genesis chapter 15. This is going all the way back to when God told Abram, that he was going to give him the land. Now, remember, we've gone by hundreds of years now and we're finally taking the land. Why has God waited so long? I want you to see the patience of God with all the Canaanites, Jebusites, Hittites, Girgashites, all the ites of the land. His patience has been there. He's been patiently enduring their wickedness. They've had every opportunity to turn toward the Lord. They've heard of the things that he's done. Rahab the harlot, when she hid the spies, says, we've heard of the Lord. We've heard what he did to the kings on the other side. We've heard about the drying up the waters of the Red Sea and you walk through on dry ground. We've heard about these things. God's signs were to produce belief, which were to produce worship and the people of the land are watching they see they see the signs but they don't believe they don't worship and God has been patient with them he's given them opportunity in the same way that Rahab as a Gentile comes to faith in Yahweh any of the people of the land could have as well their opportunity has been there but listen to Genesis 15 16 notice the patience of God he tells Abram that he's going to go to this land Um, But it's also verse 14, but I'm gonna judge this nation. You're gonna be down in this nation that's not your own, and that's Egypt. And I'm gonna judge that nation, and God judged Egypt and brought them out. They're gonna come out with many possessions. That was promised way back in Genesis 15, and they certainly did. They plundered the Egyptians. And as for you, Abram, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. In the fourth generation, see the patience of God? Fourth generation, they will return here. Now, this is the reason. The reason is given next. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, the people of the land are involved in sin. They're living wicked lives, but God is saying, I'm not quite done with them yet. The sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. I'm not Filled to the full. You think of a a water glass and water slowly being filled to the very brim. And when it gets to the top, God says, that's it. Judgment's now going to come. But you see the patience of God for people even apart from the Israelites waiting, watching, being patient with them, giving them the opportunity to turn toward him and worship him and give him the glory due his name. Four generations of waiting. 
God is not just haphazardly, arbitrarily coming into the land and and bringing about this mass destruction of people, complete annihilation, bloodshed of young and old. God has been patient throughout this time. Let me take you to another passage that talks about a little bit about this wickedness as well. In Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18, we find also in verses 24 and 25, notice very clearly, the warning, do not defile yourselves by any of these things. Now, these things, okay, he's just given a whole grocery list of things. Don't defile yourself by these things. Listen, why? For by all of these, all these things that I'm telling you not to defile yourself by, for by all these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have visited its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. There's a warning here. God is saying to Israel, listen, I don't want you to do all these things because where I'm taking you right now, the people of the land, they are doing those things. And you can read the grocery list of things that is being talked about in these verses that precede in Leviticus 18. Just let me read one. In verse 23, and you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. These are the kind of things that are going on in the land. Unnatural affections. And there's a whole grocery list here. God says, hey, don't, don't be defiled by these things. This is what's going on in the land. That's why I am visiting it with punishment. And then even the warning down in verse 27, for the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. And the text goes on and says, listen, Israel, if you get into the land and you do these things, I'll bring destruction to you as well. You see, God is a holy God. He deals impartially with humanity. He is gracious. He's merciful. He waits. He's this patient God, but sin must be judged. And so in part, what we have going on here is judgment to a wicked people. But the second thing I want you to see is God's love for his own people. He realizes they're frail. He realizes their own struggles with living in this world and God is intent on putting them in a place where he can create an environment where they can live for his honor and glory. God wants to put them in this land. He wants to cleanse it so that he can put his people there and give them every opportunity to be obedient to the law and to follow him wholeheartedly with their whole life and to give him the glory that's due his name. And we find this very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy 7, we've already read it, so I'm just gonna briefly refer to it. Remember, the reason they were to destroy these people is because if they don't, there would be intermarriage and their daughters would lead, this, lead the sons away and they would follow other gods and the anger of the Lord would then be against the nation of Israel and he would quickly destroy Israel. But no, tear down all their sacred pillars, get rid of all these idols, devote yourself wholly to the Lord. And so God wants to get rid of any possible evil influence so that his people can prosper. And I want you to see the love of God in that. God is just. 
in destroying the wicked people of the land. And he's loving in seeking to create an environment for his own people on whom he has placed his affection, those who are putting their faith in him. He's trying to create an environment where they can live for his honor and glory. Even later in Deuteronomy 13, as the people are in the land and they've settled, the the instructions of Moses in Deuteronomy 13 is when you're in the land and if there's anyone who says, hey, let's run away from God and follow these other gods, Moses says, destroy them. God wanted nothing to do with any of that. He's gonna keep this place sanctified and set apart. It's where his presence was going to dwell and his people were going to dwell. And so he wants to protect their holiness. That's what it goes on and says in Deuteronomy 7, for you are a holy people. Destroy the people, destroy their gods, for you are a holy people. You are set apart. You are, in the same way God is holy and he's other than anything in this world, his people are holy and set apart and they are to be other than anything in this world. You are a holy people to the Lord your God for the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession. Later on in chapter 20, in verse 18, again, he says, in order that you destroy them, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. No, I want you to be a holy people. So destroy them. That's their judgment. God is filled to the full with their wickedness. But I also, I want to love you. I want to create an environment where you can thrive and you can continue to be my people so I don't turn and destroy you as well. And then there's one more reason that we see God moving in and destroy the people of the land, and that's to confirm his covenant to Abram. He told Abram, in the fourth generation, you're going to come back and you're going to occupy the land. And Deuteronomy chapter 9 tells them very clearly that he gives the nation of Israel the land, not because they're more numerous than all the people of the world, not because they're more righteous than all the people of the world, no, but because he set his affection on them and because he promised Abram that he would give them the land. That is why they ultimately are able to occupy that land. God in his goodness gives gracious gifts to his people. So we step back, and I hope that's helpful in understanding why God pours out his wrath. He's not just arbitrary. He's not this God that lost it for just a moment and got angry and just poured out wrath on people. We see this bigger picture. God has been displaying his glory. The people of the land have seen it, but they haven't followed him. They've continued down their wicked path. They've continued with their evil ways and God now is bringing judgment. The point, the point that we get from all of this, the point that Israel's to get from all of this, God is serious about sin. Sin will be judged. We've seen his mercy over and over with his people, but we must not lose sight of the fact that he's serious about sin. He's other than in this world. The fact that he strives with sinful humanity and his patient is unbelievable. But don't forget he's serious about sin. 
He deals with sin. Because of sin, he enters into relationship with people. Because of sin, he has the tabernacle set up with an altar so that people can have blood atonement and maintain this fellowship with him. God loves people. He wants to bless people. But he also judges those who refuse to bow the knee to him. He also judges those who refuse to see the signs and believe and worship the greatness of his name. From Adam all the way through history up until now, God is demonstrating an incredible patience. And I want you to see that in this story. Fourth generation, the patience of God that is there. I think that 2 Peter chapter 3 summarizes it so well for us. In 2 Peter 3, in verses 3 through 9, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? You talking about this king who's gonna come back. Where is it? For ever since the fathers died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. For when they maintain this, this is what Peter says, it escapes their notice by, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. God already brought a great judgment. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire. There's a greater judgment that's about to come kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly man. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. He hasn't lost track of what's going on in this world. He hasn't forgotten. It's not like God is on a break and is unaware of what's happening in the world. He's not slack, as some might say, he's slow, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but that all would come to repentance. That's who God is from Adam until now. There's been this patience so that God could do a work in humanity, so that humanity could see who he is and believe in him and worship him. God's been about that kind of work. But along the way, God gives us glimpses of the reality that he's gonna deal with sin. And again, this is his mercy. The fact that God allows us to see so that we don't become complacent, so that we don't forget who he is. God allows us to see that holy God will break out in judgment against sin. He is good to let us see this. But think about what we've already seen. Genesis chapter six, God floods the entire world with water and everything that hath breath of life in it dies, everything but because Noah found favor, God remembered Noah in the ark and God continues his plan. He doesn't do away with humanity. God loves people. He wants to be in relationship with them. He doesn't destroy the whole world. He allows more people to be alive, continued existence. Why? So that more people could know him and worship him and glorify him and know the joy that comes with that. God is patient, but he does destroy we see later on in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, the wickedness of that city. And Abraham comes to God and says, well, what if there's 50? How about 40? How about 
And God continues, okay, okay. You see how loving God is with people. If people will respond to him, if they'll worship him, he'll pour out mercy. He's a good God. He's a patient God. He wants to bless people. It's amazing to me that when people read through the Bible, they'll read the flood, they'll read Sodom and Gomorrah, and it doesn't really phase them that much. And then they'll get to Joshua and the destruction of land, and all of a sudden, oh, this God is angry. So throughout the history of the Old Testament, and even throughout the history of the world, God gives us glimpses of the fact that he takes sin seriously. And oftentimes when students are reading through the Old Testament, they'll miss Genesis 6 and the flood and how devastating everything that hath breath of life in it was consumed. Sodom and Gomorrah, everyone who lived in those cities were consumed. But when they get to Joshua, all of a sudden they see all this bloodshed. But God is giving us these glimpses along the way in his goodness. He wants us to see who he is. He is merciful and he works with people, but he's just, he's holy. He will deal with sin along the way. And so when we look at the big picture, we see that God is this merciful God. He's full of loving kindness. He's patient with humanity. We do not see simply this angry God of the Old Testament who we wanna put to the past, put into the history so we can have this gracious God of the New Testament. God is merciful throughout. He's been working with people. He wants to bring them to a place to where they can know him and receive the blessings that come from knowing who he is, the blessings that he longs to pour out to people. Even in the church today, God is a God who disciplines. If we were to turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 and verses four through 11, we would see this so clearly. The one whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. In the same way that earthly fathers discipline their children, God disciplines those who are in his family as well. And it can hurt, it can be painful. And we don't always know what that is in our life. If something difficult happens to me or something painful happens to me in my life or the life of one of my friends, I don't know if that's the discipline of God or if God is refining them to become more the man or woman that he's recreated them to be. We don't know what that is. In the Old Testament, we have commentary where the author explains to us God is doing this because of discipline because of judgment, we don't have that in our own lives today, but God continues to bring about discipline in the lives of his people as well in the church. And I also want us to see that God gives us little glimpses along the way because the greatest outpouring of wrath is not even in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't even contain the account of where God is ultimately gonna pour out this greatest outpouring of his wrath, that's still to come. And it's found in the New Testament. If we wanna talk about a God of wrath, you've gotta to go to the book of Revelation where we see in chapter 20 in verses 10 through 15 where Satan is cast into the lake of fire and all those who rebel and refuse to bow the knee to the Father are cast into an eternity of destruction. God pours out his wrath, but even that day is not God finally saying, I've had it. No, it's, it, God has been patient throughout all of time, from the time of Adam 
through now into whatever history still is to occur before that day. God is being patient. He wants people to be in relationship with him. And so before one even gets into Revelation 20 and reads verses 10 through 15, they must read the story of the Bible. So many people say, I can't deal with a God who acts that way. But they aren't reading the whole story. If they want to deal with God, they got to deal with all of who God is. God is just, he must act consistently with his character. But God is merciful, and the only way they can receive that mercy is not to create their own God, but to respond to the God who is. A God who says, you can have relationship with me, but it must be on my terms. God has constantly been putting his glory on display for all to see, and humanity continues to rebel. He has been patient with humanity and their rebellion throughout time, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there comes a time when God has to deal with sin. The flood is a picture of that. Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a picture of that. We have this whole scene as Israel comes into the promised land. It's a picture of that. God disciplines his people along the way. And we see the ground open up and swallow Israelites. We see a plague break out with them. We see them go into exile. God is serious about sin and we must understand this. His glory is to be known. He is to be exalted in all the earth. So these many judgments along the way are once again evidence of the goodness of God. And so when we read the story in Joshua, as odd as it sounds, and we see this outpouring of God's wrath, when we step back and see the big picture, we should say, thank you, God, for giving us a picture of who you are. Thank you for giving us the evidence of what your holiness looks like in response to evil. Thank you for giving us that glimpse because God is sending us in the world a warning. He's, he's good. And so as he does this, he demonstrates for us his goodness ever so gently, reminding us that he is to be honored above all. He gives chance after chance after chance. Every day, the sun appears in the sky. God has given us a sign. That's to produce belief. That's the lead to worship. And Romans 1 says, these signs are placed in the sky for all the world to see. Daily, when the sun appears, another chance. Nightly, when the moon in all its splendor appears in the sky, another chance. The twinkling stars, another chance. All of creation, another chance. God constantly, patiently giving people opportunity to come to him. Every day, the gospel spreads through the world. Another chance. Every day, another people group gets reached. Another chance. Every day, the Bible is translated into another language. Another chance. And he's being patient. He's not willing that any should perish. Second Peter chapter three again, in verses three through nine is what frames all this. The Lord's not slack concerning his promises. Some count this slowness. He is patient. He's long-suffering. He perseveres with humanity. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants to be in relationship with people. He wants to bless. So again, as we read Joshua and the people come in, 
We've got the human dimension and the divine. The human, human dimension, they are to utterly destroy everything, but we must remember this is God who's bringing about the destruction. This is God who's judging wickedness. Israel is not standing in a judgment posture toward the people of the land. Apart from God's mercy, that's exactly where they would, where they would be as well. This is God enacting his judgment. But what's going on here is this is the end of God's patience with these particular people. And it's a reminder to us that God is serious about sin. And when we look forward to Revelation 20, when we anticipate that day, we recognize that there's a day coming when God will display entirely his wrath against all rebellion and have it be done away with once and for all, no more. Until that day, just in the same way God was being patient with the people of the land, God is being patient with all the people of the world, giving them opportunity to come to know him. So when we step back from the book of Joshua and consider this God of wrath, we actually see we've got another example of a God of mercy. It's incredible who this God is. It's incredible to be reminded of his tender mercies to people. Now, what we want to do in our next session is we want to continue to consider the books of Joshua and Judges and see some of these patterns and themes that flow throughout these books so that we can learn the lessons that God wants us to learn, God and who he is at work with humanity.